you know, we still carry a lot of this culture background that make us feel bad. Sometimes, you know, you feel bad because especially back in the early days that doing these sports, you don't make money actually. So then you're gonna feel like a loser. Am I doing the right thing? Should I go back to the urban life to build the things they expect? Welcome to Tong, Tracing the Trend, a podcast exploring the origins of cultural phenomena in China, from niche to mainstream, from past to present. Episode 6. Hi, welcome to another episode of Tracing the Trend. Today, we'll be talking about surfing and China's booming island, Hainan. Joining me is Stefan, my co-host. Hey, how's it going? Glad to be here. And also our guest speaker today, Darcy Liu. Darcy is China's first ever professional female surfer turned ocean conservationist. So it's very timely that we have the podcast today because literally two days ago, uh, BBC published an article about China's rising surf scene. So unfortunately, they, they just about beat us to this. But I think it shines a really interesting light on a subject that is garnering more and more international attention. And we want to dive in a little bit more today to really know what's happening on the ground. This episode I'm particularly excited about um, in comparison to our previous subjects, such as baijiu or camping in the Chinese countryside, or even gaming, because personally I've, I've never surfed, so I can only, I guess, comment on from um, an observational perspective. Um, Stefan, have you surfed before? I have very briefly in Australia when I was down there playing rugby as a teenager, um, but it was just a, a parent of someone I was playing against who I was staying with who took me out and uh, I failed to stand up, but <laughs> I'll just say I've been bodyboarding. <laughs> so yeah, I think we'll lean uh, to Darcy a lot today um, just to bring the real kind of colour, the experience and perspective on the sport. Starting off, I think let's go back and understand a little bit of the timeline of how Darcy got into the sport. So I am actually originally from Hubei province, which is right in the middle of China. Uh, it's like thousand miles away from the ocean. So I only learned, like I only saw the ocean very first time when I was 19, uh, which I don't really know how to swim. Uh, surfing was definitely not in my category as my future career, you know? <laughs> so I came to Hainan when I was 20 with my ex. Uh, he's a surfer, so that's how uh, you know, surfing has crossed in my life. And uh, yeah, I moved to Sanya because learned surfing first time and we just like really like here. So decide to just live here. So yeah, that's in 2007. That's how I just start learning how to surf. And there's no one else actually surfing in China at the moment. Uh, I think there's like a three other Chinese uh, guys that are surfing right here. In 2007, and I wanted to continue here, so I worked for one of those restaurants and as a manager, so I can have the lifestyle that work in the evening and surf during the daytime and keep my life going. China had the very first surf shop, 
And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna work at a surf shop so I can surf all the time, which is very wrong. When you work in a surf shop, you are always working <laughs> as a surf coach. <laughs> so you won't have time to surf, you know? But, um, but it's a very, very good experience because back in the days, that's China's very first surf shop. You have to be thinking about it. Actually, they started in 2008. It's the first one. Um, but, you know, we don't really have a lot of tours, uh, like customer during those days, because there's not many people come here to surf. So we, our only customer is one of those like expats that lives in China. Mm -hmm. We take them out surf, on a surf trip, uh, which those job is very unstable because we don't make a lot of money doing those stuff. <laughs> doing those days. Um, when we're talking about surfing, um, you know, we don't really have those words in Chinese. Sure. So kind of my job that I have to do this, like a dictionary, make it English into Chinese words as surfing professional words, you know, which I think is very, now I look it back, I think it's a very meaningful job, what I did out there. Mm -hmm. um, so Taiwan had a surfing for way longer than China. Because uh, Taiwan had surf culture came into Japan, you know. And so I was kind of uh, taking some of the words that from Taiwanese mm -hmm. and then thinking about what is the right way to say it in Chinese. So let's say we're saying a left-hander wave. So we say zuo shou lang, I would translate mm -hmm. it into. So nowadays we're using a lot of those like Chinese uh how do you say like a uh, surfing words and yeah. um, we actually made it those words into dictionary wow that's, that's so interesting that is so cool you created your own like language and culture around the sport in china and you've sh shaped that from the beginning which is yeah that's crazy we had our very first surf contest in China that's in 2009 which we had a nothing it's we had only a small tiny little poster that was a hanging on a rock and uh, we had a uh, less than 20 competitors that most are expat that live in China they fly all the way here to compete but that put a surf contest and surfing kind of a uh, in, in the world surfing map. It brought a lot of attention um, to the international surfing world. And people realized, oh, the, you guys actually, there's surf in China. So Darcy, can you tell us a bit more about the governmental support that was involved with this festival? Well, I think everything that we do, we need to have a government support to make the event actually more professional. Right. And in the same time, in a safety way as well, you know, and if we wanted to invite com in um, international surfer came all the way here to compete. So we need a, a lot of government support. Sure. Yeah, the safety is a good point, because sometimes there are just organizations and people that you guys can't get hold of initially. And well, not just that. And you're thinking about if uh, there's no one flight with a surfboard on a flight before. And most of the airline that doesn't even want to have a surfboard on their flight. Oh, so the government just kind of have to help out with really unexpected things. Which, 
yeah, with a lot of things for them to getting out over here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a small surf shop, you can't just make all that happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Fair play. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, even nowadays, if you're taking any, like, Chinese fly, you're bringing a surfboard. I'm like, sorry, you can't have a surfboard on a, on a fly, or you can't even just go shipping it. Uh, so there's a lot of things that from the bottom to the ground, like every, everything, a lot of details that we definitely are like uh, government supports, um, oh. a lot of things. Yeah. So then how do you think attitudes changed to surfing inside China after that first major tournament? I have to say for the first few surf contests that doesn't really make so much change inside of China, but it's actually made a more change outside of China. Because most people that came here are very well-known surfer. So they surfed here and they had, a, they all have like a social media. They all are very well-known. People interviewed them. So they kind of helped to put a surfing in an international map. And a lot of international surfer know that actually in China has surfing. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely it's not kind of one day or one year kind of thing that went big in China. It, from 2010 to 2021, it, it took 11 years for us to get here. But I have to say in the last couple of years, surfing has grown way quicker, you know, as the social media worked different right now you know yeah. people doesn't get famous on instagram back in the old days but right now people can make money on instagram yeah, yeah. so it's the same thing uh, as social media i think also and because the covid right now and um, i think people can't travel outside china um, and hainan as the only tropical island that people came here back in the old days people came here they stay in the hotel uh, but right now, people say, oh, there's surf, there's scuba dive, and there's skydiving. And there's a lot of things, multiple things to do. You know, I think all things came together at the right time. Sure. Um, it started booming. So, of course, COVID has impacted every aspect of almost everyone's life on the planet. And um, its impact on surfing in China is no different people have turned to domestic tourism in China because China's kept a good lid on the pandemic and that's very much altered the habits um, of Chinese tourists' travel habits and also the activities they get up to. So I was wondering if you had any more insight into how that has affected or even helped surfing during the past year and a half. Hainan just right now has a lot of more, much more to offer. Uh, you know, Hainan was a kind of a fisherman island. And Hainan was belonged to Guangdong. Um, okay, so it wasn't even its own province then? Yeah, it wasn't even okay. a province. Um, and so it's a very young island. Sure. And it has a lot of uh, space and opportunity to grow. And so in the last past um, 15 years, I think Hainan government put us so much into um making Hainan more diverse so it has more things to offer to people to come here sure. to do which I think um a surfing it just cut in the right time with uh, Hainan you know Hainan government it's putting so much on you know on golf course uh, Hainan putting so much government was putting it on like on surfing and selling mm -hmm. yacht 
Sure. You're in the you're in what we would say kind of the hot spot of the world right now. I think there's a real global kind of yeah global eyes are on Hainan as like the next booming place. So yeah, really exciting, really exciting time. talk a little bit about the culture of surfing because one of the things that we drew us to this specifically as a subject is not only the fact that it's new uh, in China uh, relatively speaking to other sports but also because it's just got such a fascinating kind of community and lifestyle around it right when you think about competitive sports such as you know like you know running or sprinting of course there is a real focus on the competitive aspect not to say that surfing doesn't have that but I feel like there's a real lifestyle and social interaction and even fashion around surfing so like it'd be great to understand from your perspective like what is it that makes surfing fun and makes you feel so connected to it aside from you know just the fact that you're physically doing something I think on a personal level surfing it's a very healing sport I think because uh, myself I never been to uh, college for me Surfing is more like a college, or or, or or maybe if I don't have, you know, some people they have they believe they have a religion to believe, and surfing is also my my belief. I think through surfing, I I grow so much. I think who I am today has so much to do because I'm a surfer. It kind of gave me a totally different new life. And the life that make me live free. I think live free is not afraid of, uh, mm, I think, outside standard expectation from, from others. I love that. I feel like that's such a, a dream for a lot of people because in one hand, you know, it's so inspiring to hear that. And you're very humble in, in, in the sense of the stars aligning, but obviously you worked very hard to make that happen as well but also I think in the context of you know we know in China a lot of uh, city workers are you know feel overworked you know we talk about the 996 we talk about you know Mm -hmm. people feeling really emotionally kind of run down and I think in a way I think maybe surfing's draw is the antithesis of what people have to deal with what most people in modern cities have to deal with so and, and I can totally understand why you know a lot of people do want to partake in the sport as a sense of escapism right it's a sense of freedom it's all the different values that I think it teaches people beyond just being on a board and and trying to stand Mm -hmm. in the sea so I totally see the reason for the boom not just about experiences and about you know domestic travel but actually about young people seeking to try something different and something that is not about responsibility or tradition or expectations so yeah it's amazing that you've created this and uh yeah really really fantastic I think what's different is you know when you're talking about Chinese uh, surfing culture I need to you need to really dig into go back to how our society works you know, I am from the 80s. I born 1986. So for kids that born 80s and late 70s, it has so much responsibilities. Most late 70s and 80s and early 90s kids, they're single child. 
And this is their child kids that right now it's when the Chinese uh, economy rising like crazy. All the house is going up, property is going up super fast. And all the single kids that they, most kids that now they, they're married. So for the 80s kids that they're married, they have two both parents, that's four parents. And then they have a second child policy. They want to have two kids because they grow up by themselves. They don't want their child grow up by themselves, you know? And so these two guys, this, two, this couple, they have to raise eight people in their family. They don't really have a ton of space to think about going to serve. And so I taught thinking about they're like, oh, white people are afraid of surfing. They don't want to go surf. Yeah, of course. Like, for me, if I'm even in Beijing or Shanghai, I have to, I have to take in care of eight people, and I have to pay mortgage for house, sure, and car, and you know, it's really hard to drop everything to say, all right, I'm just gonna move to Hainan and just be a surf bum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's super interesting, and I think maybe Jenny that's kind of answered some of our question of what these kind of community sports are, if that's the right word to use in the sense that it's very much more a lifestyle and it's a lifestyle away from what society expects you to do. Um, Cause a lot of the things you said, Darcy made me think about skateboarding too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a big key, key difference is that maybe a problem, I, I love skateboarding, but maybe a problem with skateboarding is that, you have to do it in really urban environments. So maybe you should be in like Beijing or Shanghai because um, mm-hmm. you need to use the cityscape to do the sport. But at the same time, it's still like a community of people who come together and feel like they're living an alternative lifestyle and that they experience a lot of freedom in that sense too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe surfing's got even more appeal because then you're properly engaged with nature as well. And you're, you're on the sea, you're outdoors. You know, choosing this lifestyle that outside of you, you always have a lot of voice behind you. Your parents is like, hey, you know, you're in this age, you should do this. You're you're really unresponsible. And, you know, I'm simply just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, we still carry a lot of this cultural background that make us feel bad. Sometimes, you know, you feel bad. Because especially back in the early days that doing these sports, you don't make money, actually. So then you're going to feel like a loser. I'm actually running away from the society, expecting what I should be. Am I doing the right thing? Should I go back to the urban life to build the things they expect? How about when I get old, I'm going to be like homeless? So you can have a lot of things that in your mind. So the reason that I do my surf free trade that goes with meditation. So it brings wellness into because, you know, we wanted to make it surfing as people like it's the right way, right things to do. Also, we don't want people have so much self-adulting kind of, um, so from outside of people can also look at, oh, surfing, oh, they're surf bomb. They're, they're, they're running away from problems. Sure. They're running away from stress. They're not, they're, they're not like taking care of themselves yeah. or taking care of things, you know. Do you think some of that attitude has become more popular in cities with ideas like um, Tang Ping and just sort of like disengaging mm. from the competition in cities? And actually, like your generation and people younger are starting mm-hmm. to say, 
you know, like you just said, other people will say they're not looking after themselves, Mm -hmm. but they actually, you and other people actually think you are looking after yourselves by regulating the amount of responsibility that you do have and choosing Mm -hmm. what's a healthy amount of responsibility and a stressful amount of responsibility. So it really depends on the person, I think. the individual, yeah. Yeah, really stood out to me um, when we were kind of stalking you on the internet, Darcy, was how um, how you were able to reconcile so many different um, aspects of lifestyle together. So, you know, aside from surfing, you know, we talked about meditation. We talked, um, I know you're really into music as well, um, mm-hmm. DJ. So it's just amazing how it shows that, like, like it shows how kind of complex and diverse that you can integrate different hobbies and passions within that and even on a higher level being able to see how um, successful you are at integrating what is a passion and actually what is commercially viable right like it's been a timely fortune of things happening and COVID as well as we discussed but also I think it's great to recognize that yes it's taken over 10 years to to arrive here but also to be able to balance you know things that you enjoy for pure pleasure things that you do for commercial reasons and actually make it work for you as well the past 10 years that I find my way and also the COVID like as I mentioned that I realized nothing is more important for me to stay mentally and physically healthy so when I do retreat I want to provide that because most people who come to my retreat they're they're a mother um they're they're a wife they they have their business owner they have so many roles to play. They're all over the place, all the time. So when I organize the tree, I tell them during this part of time, you are not allowed to use your phone. At this part of the time, you're owning you as an individual. And who are you as an individual? Do you know? We cannot last that. Yeah, to do a lot of people struggle with that question. Yeah. So the retreat is bringing women, bring us together to reunion and to spend that time together to remind each other, hey, look, you're not just a mother or wife or, or someone that worked for this company or, or this role you're playing, but you're you. You need to take care of yourself, you know? That's a, it's a really powerful thing you're organizing on the retreats, and that's a really great philosophy to have, yeah. so... I hope that continues to grow. Um, I was kind of wondering then, so you've, you've said how important it is to embrace all your different identities, you mm-hmm. know, particularly if you're like a, a working mother who's married in China and so on. Um, and going back to surfing more particularly, me and Jenny wanted to explore also how mm-hmm. it's getting more and more support from the state in China, particularly as... Um, they want to have an Olympic team for 2024 mm-hmm. when surfing becomes competitive. I suppose there's two questions. How do you think that's changing the surfing scene in China? And also, will surfers be able to explore those other identities as well? Or will it yeah. all be towards competitive surfing and, and will the culture change? Well, first of all, I think Chinese government has been doing a 
very good job um, putting the team together. Because right now we have uh, Sichuan, Hainan, Beijing. They have like all different cities. They have sure. their own team, the cool. and now uh, the national uh, surf contest just finished last week. Uh-huh. It was a very good contest. I think the national for government putting up the team. It's very good because it brings the surfers' skills up, and we needed to have a professional, like uh, organized way to train. Like even back in the old days, for me to compete, I don't have a proper training coach, and we don't have a proper way of training to be a professional surfer. So right now, which is very good. Because uh, our government hired a professional surf coach from Australia, from America, and before COVID, so all the coach were training right here. But right now, uh, so they're kind of train um, coaching online. And back in the uh, before, also all the surfer that they travel all over the world to train. So like, if our surfer wants to be able to surf in the Olympics, they needed to train. To get way better, like for yeah, me, sure. I, we're not gonna get there, you know. So we need to get kids <laughs> start training a professional way, and because the government support and it helped the sports grow, yeah, totally. it became a national sport, you know. So we've spoken about the, the government involvement, and then am I right that quite early on you got support from sponsorship from a brand when you started surfing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was I was I was curious about how you think brand sponsorship has helped surfing in China and how that's developed over the past ten years too. I think uh, brand support surfing it's a very I think it's a huge part of it. Um, first of all, let's talk about have a surf competition. If you don't have a brand to support to sponsor, as a small surf shop, we're not going to have the money to host a surf event. Sure. And as a surfer, uh, so I was sponsored by Swatch. So if I have a sponsor to uh, sponsor me, so I will be mobile to have money to travel outside of China or to different spots to surf. Definitely. I think it's quite interesting from our perspective because we work with um, a lot of brands across fashion and lifestyle. And it's just, it's so fascinating because there is definitely a distinction that we can make between um, brands that want to invest in certain sports or activities that there is a real connection to for them. So we know that um, certain brands invest a lot in outdoor sport sports or certain mm-hmm. brands invest a lot in a particular community. But it's just fascinating because what, what we see more of is brands being more driven by trends so you know when something's trendy a lot of brands will be there to kind of help support it but actually you know when things come and go come and go it's just interesting to see the differences in yeah the investment and the support in the long term so yeah it's it's a really good lesson to learn I think at the most important core of it I think it's really just about supporting communities and being Mm -hmm. in the right places to help foster those uh uh, sports and activities and communities that need it so I'm really glad to see brands doing more of that than they used to do and I think it's always welcome because at the end of the day you know bigger corporations always can lean more to smaller individuals communities and organizations because it's just impossible to put up things like you know a show or a competition and even like for fashion for example young, young designers you know like the average cost of getting a show is like 40 grand and like who's got 40 grand to, to do a show themselves so I think it's really important 
moving towards kind of our last two questions now. What do we think the future holds for the island and for surfing? Like, where do you think we're going to be in the next 10 years? I think because when I look at it, the last, the past 10 years in Hainan, I think I've never seen any places in the world that grows that quick. None of those oh. places. Um, I mean, Shanghai is very modernized and Shenzhen is, is growing fast as well. But Hainan is one of the places that is growing ridiculously fast. And right now in Hainan, it's a free trading port. And the, the trading port is going to open in 25, I believe. And so the government is putting so much work into make that work, everything. So I can't imagine what Hainan is going to be like in the ne in next 10 years. Yeah, I think Hainan is going to be a very diverse, interesting, full of opportunity um, place. And I am very proud is Hainan banned single-use plastic in 2020. So the government is putting so much, putting so much effort into protect the environment, and which they're very aware. The only way to to make a Hainan grow, it has to be a sustainable sustainable way to do it. Yeah, that was my actually next question, which was around with all of this boom that's happening in Hainan. How yeah, how does the city balance the, I guess, the waste and, and all the different fallouts of this boom, right? Because there's going to be more people, there's going to be more rubbish, mm -hmm. there's going to be more, yeah, just more tourists who come and go and not really think about the ecosystem. And mm -hmm. we want to preserve like the tropical island. This is such a yeah. special place in China um, mm -hmm. and in the, whole, in the whole region. And it makes me think, you know, what can people be doing more to, to do that? Because we don't want to, as, as similar to other parts of the world, it's such a delicate ecosystem, such a delicate balance that we have to strike there as well. Yeah, well, I think not just Hainan, the whole world, you know, we have to be aware uh, have a sustainable, sustainable lifestyle because the whole world, we're, we're creating so much waste. So I think Hanan is actually, yeah, there's some policy, to, some policy comes out that really makes me very happy because Hanan is one of the islands that really bans single-use plastic, which is really, really important. And uh, also by 2025, no, in, uh, only electric car and e-car is allowed on this island to drive. And we don't have any factory on the island as well. So do you think Hainan's actually quite a leading example for other cities and provinces across China and even the world in, in how to develop more sustainable places? I think at least wanted to and trying to go in that direction. Sure. Um, I mean, if you go to any small places, you, you can still tell there's a lot of things to, needed to be done. Mm -hmm. But at least the big picture, it's going that way. And there's organizations coming here. And, you know, as surfers like us, we're trying to um, push in that uh, message as well. It's going to take a lot of work, like our whole world, like our big home. You know, there's so much work to do to... <laughs> to make our environment to to get the environment 
issue out there, like the message out there. I mean, uh, at least the big picture is moving to that direction. Love that. And um, I think that nicely wraps up, um, which is one of the points that I'm going to take away. There's still a much needed piece around awareness, I think, that we need to continue being consistent on. And the fact that you're doing this um, very proactively, I think is very inspiring and, and a really nice message to leave to leave this on. Thank you for listening to Tong's Tracing the Trend. We are a collective of cross-cultural experts championing for a more connected and informed global society. For more information, head over to our website, tongdigital.com. Want to submit a topic for discussion? DM us on Instagram at tongglobal. That's at T-O-N-G global to have your voice heard.